So here's an interesting exercise that I did this past week. Went to Google and I typed in the little search line, um, why do politicians not answer the question? All right, I'm just having some fun, y'all. Please know, I have the utmost respect for people who run for public office. Uh, my own father uh, did that in, back in Virginia. Some of my favorite people on the planet have run for office, including people right here in this church. But I wonder if uh, a lot of us have lost our sense of balance between taking things seriously enough and losing our sense of humor altogether. Uh, so I typed this in. What's the answer? Why do politicians so often refuse to answer the question? And um, again, not to touch any raw nerves here, so the, the article that I was led to that interested me the most was from the United Kingdom, not even in the United States, from five years ago, not about this election cycle here, from The Guardian, and it was an article that was uh, talking about the research done by a psychiatrist at York University, and his name is, I kid you not, Peter Bull. He, he studied this, and uh, he says there's some good reasons why politicians might uh, avoid answering the question. Number one is to avoid looking bad. Um, that might be goal number one for a politician when being interviewed or on a debate stage. Don't make any mistakes, and to give a definitive answer is to risk actually being wrong. Second reason is uh, if you give an unspecified, ambiguous response to a specific question, kind of keeps your options open if you decide you want to say something else at the next campaign stop or waffle on the issue later on. Peter Bull's research indicates that adversarial interviewing styles are actually less likely to get a direct answer. And also, similarly, politicians who aggressively attack the interviewer usually do so in a strategic way to make sure that the original question is forgotten in all the ensuing verbal squabbling. So we see all of this on display in our current national moment. Uh, but how about in our gospel reading today? The Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said, so they sent some of their disciples to him and they said, uh, teacher, rabbi, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And Jesus replied, as you know so well, and just heard again, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. Well, I think you could be forgiven in hearing this familiar story and wondering, I'm not sure Jesus answered the question. Is he being merely evasive here? So we are deep into the gospel according to Matthew now. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem Events are all leading to the climax of the gospel story. That, of course, is the crucifixion. And so today, Jesus is in the temple precincts, and he's teaching, and there are large crowds around him. And the religious establishment observing this, uh, they're threatened by that, they're resentful of it, and they want to entrap Jesus in a publicly damaging way. And here's an idea. Let's ask him an impossible question. Rabbi, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. How does this question put Jesus in a precarious, no-win situation? Well, it's helpful to remember that in Jesus' own lifetime, between his birth and his crucifixion, that the people of Judea and Jerusalem 
um, lost their privilege granted to them by Rome, more or less to administer their own affairs uh, through just sort of incompetence and rampant corruption in the years that followed the death of King Herod the Great. The Romans finally said, enough is enough. We're going to appoint our own governor, um, think of Pontius Pilate, uh, to administer governance over that area, and we will collect our own taxes from you. So the, the question that the Pharisees are posing to Jesus is not about paying taxes generally. The Jews of Jesus' day were kind of like Americans today. They paid already all kinds of taxes. They paid local taxes. They paid temple taxes. And now they pay this tax to the empire, to Rome. So the issue is not about paying taxes. It's about paying taxes to the emperor. Jesus says, um, show me the coin uh, used for this tax. And they brought him a denarius. Denarius was the primary uh, denomination in the currency of the Roman Empire, kind of like the U.S. dollar bill. So Jesus takes this silver coin in his hand and holds it up, and he asks, whose image and, and whose title is on this? And on this particular coin, and we have them preserved, would have been the imprinted image of Caesar Tiberius. The inscription on these coins did not read, in God we trust. No, it read, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Aha. So, as a faithful Jew, do we think Jesus had suddenly forgotten the first commandment? You shall have no other gods but me. Do we think he had forgotten the second commandment? You shall not worship any graven image. So the Roman denarius, as you see, is 0 for 2 so far in the Ten Commandments. And now you can see uh, the cunning of the Pharisees in asking this no-win question of Jesus. Jesus can say, no, do not pay this tax if you're a faithful Jew. This, this coin represents idolatry. Worship of the emperor is what it represents. Faithful Jews should never participate in ungodly systems. Well, he could say that, and you can bet that the Roman authorities in Jerusalem were keeping an eye out for people who did say things just like that, and they tried them for sedition and crucified them. They were always on the lookout for public rabble-rousers. On the other hand, though, Jesus could have said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Better to be governed by a totalitarian pagan emperor than to be governed with utter incompetence and corruption, or worse, to devolve into utter anarchy. So obviously, such an answer would have given the Jewish religious establishment an opportunity to undermine Jesus' authority in the public by accusing him of ignoring the commandments. So do we, in fact, hear Jesus give a kind of none-of-the-above response? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What does Jesus mean? My reading of the text and my reading of other smarter people than, than I am about the text, commentaries, is that in this difficult passage, Jesus is getting at the following. Caesar, Rome, empires, 
presidents, politics, elections, the economy, the government, policies, the Supreme Court, these are important realities of life to more or lesser degrees, maybe unfortunate necessities of life. We cannot ignore them, give them their due, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give Caesar absolutely no more than his due. Do not make the myriad concerns of this world like a Caesar to you, like a pagan emperor that you idolize. For you are instead to render to God the things that are God's. And what are the things of God? Everything. All of it. There is no realm of life, not even empires and politics, not subject first and foremost to the sovereignty of God. So Jesus is not making some classic argument here for the separation of church and state. Please, please avoid that interpretation. He is not some enlightenment man from the 18th century. Good grief. Jesus is a Jewish Lord. He is talking about our highest allegiance and our identity as sons and daughters of the living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, not our identity found in our nationality or party or gender or race or ethnicity or pick your passionate tribal allegiance du jour. And with his typically devastating insight, Jesus is getting at our real priorities, our deepest loves, how we regard what is ultimate in relation to the things of this world, which in fact are not ultimate, as important as they may be. Whoever the ruler of this age is on earth is not ultimate. An election may be very, very important, but it's not ultimate. Christians should care and participate in the significant issues and causes of the day, but never take them on with a kind of religious zeal or ideological passion eclipsing our identity in Christ. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and former prime minister of the Netherlands, once famously said, there is not a square inch of creation about which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine. He is sovereign. He reigns over all, and he reigns over every ruler. So the extraordinary opportunity that we have as believers in a time like this is to offer a counter witness to all the madness out there that is at its root when it's at its worst about idolatry, making secondary things, even good and important things, ultimate things. Jesus, is it lawful for me to pay so much emotional energy fretting and being angry about our country's problems? And he responds, well, maybe, but not if it makes you less loving and begins to define your own identity separate from me. Jesus, is it lawful for me to invest so much in my children's future success, in, in my career, in my stock portfolio? Maybe, but I wouldn't go looking there for your source of ultimate joy. Our society is clearly diseased, but it is not thoroughly diseased, and there is no part of the diseased parts that are beyond 
potential healing. Remember that. Jesus once said to a sick woman in the Gospels, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Our world is in pain, but it need not be meaningless pain. There is the pain of repentance that actually opens up possibilities for new life, new birth. Jesus elsewhere in the gospel said, when a woman has delivered a baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, but rather experiences the joy, the joy of a new life coming into the world. Our times are marked by much darkness, but there are bright lights too. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. At the bottom of Jesus' response to the Pharisees today, to you and to me, I, I think, is not simply sort of moral obedience to the commandments. It goes even deeper than that. I think he's going all the way down to the very, very beginning when we came into our very being. When the triune God said, let us make humankind in our image. The sense of the ancient Hebrew here, as you may have been taught before, is an account of the maker of the universe creating with his hands the human and then taking his hand and pressing it on our chest, imprinting his own image upon us as if pressing his palm into clay. It is not the minted image of all the Caesars of the world, something on a coin, so to speak, but the image of God, our maker and redeemer, that makes us who we really are. And how easily that gets obscured, perhaps never more so than when we think history has turned sour, when we're anxious about the present, and when we're pessimistic about the future. But this same God whose word brought us into being, brought us into flesh, that word became flesh as well. And he lived and he died and he rose again for the likes of you and for me and for the whole world. And there is power in that when we ultimately rest everything on that truth and put our trust, everything, in that, to make us more and more people of faith and hope and love, of courage and of joy. And the world out there needs that more than it even knows. So what an incredible time for you and for me to be the church, to be believers together and for the sake of the world. Yes, render what you feel you must render to Caesar, just enough, just enough, no more. But render everything you have, all that you are, to God. Because after all, God has rendered everything he has, all that he is, to us.